I live in these two different, <laughs> I call them two different time zones. Part of my life was 2012. Like I can go back there in an instant and be there and I can see it. I can smell it. I can feel it. And then to think that it's been 10, it's been a decade. Oh my gosh. Like longer than Catherine lived. Um, of course it's hard. It's also for me a poignant reminder. Time is fleeting. Ten years ago, tragedy struck the town of Newtown, Connecticut. Twenty students and six educators died during a shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School. Jenny Hubbard, whose voice you just heard, is the mother of one of the victims. That clip is from the podcast Still Newtown. It's out this week. It visits the community ten years after the tragedy. And after the break, we do the same. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor, SmartWool. Our greatest adventures can't be gift-wrapped, but the SmartWool gear that makes them possible can. From award-winning merino wool base layers to must-have accessories and socks, the magic of merino will keep your loved ones warm and cozy all season long. Whether you're shopping for the all-day explorer or the late-night bonfire starter, find the perfect merino gift for every adventurer on your list. Enjoy 15% off your first purchase when you sign up for Smart Wool's mailing list. Let's get right into the conversation by speaking to the host of the new podcast, Still Newtown, reporter Davis Donovan. He joins us from the WSHU studios in Fairfield, Connecticut. Davis, welcome to 1A. Thanks for having me. So you decided the right name for this podcast was Still Newtown. Tell us why. So when we started thinking about this and did we want to do something first? And if we were going to do something, it's very important to know what what the story is. You know, there's, of course, there's, Newtown is a town of almost 30,000 people. There's a lot of stories and there's a lot of ways we could think about this. Originally, I thought, and I think a, a few of us thought this might be a story about how December 14th, 2012 changed Newtown, how Newtown was reimagined. But we quickly realized that wasn't the story. And we, we realized that from speaking with people and people hearing stories about people sticking together, people persevering, people come through. So this, this is about how a community held together and how goodness and, and kindness and, and love came out of this tragedy. So that's what the title Still Newtown means. But it's also a reference to how the issues that led to what happened in Newtown are still present, as we see in the news all too often. You said you were questioning if you did this, what it would be about. Was there some hesitation about revisiting this 10 years on? I asked myself a lot, should we do it? Why should we do it? If we do it, what is our reasoning? What's our motivation behind it? Because I know that a lot of exploitative journalism has existed, and I knew I didn't want to do anything like that. And a lot of people have seen the effects of that, and I think rightfully are are cautious about getting a call from a reporter. You know, people have a right not to be interviewed or profiled, but on the other side, there are people who have stories that they want to share and they need to share. So ultimately, yes, this... This is about bearing witness. You know, in an age in which our reality is sometimes questioned, I think it's important to say this is what happened and, and give voice uh, to 
the people who can tell that story. There have been many mass shootings since Newtown. Why is this specific tragedy important to reflect on? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, um, I think that's best answered by looking at some of the young survivors, um, children who were in the school that day, who are now in high school or college. These kids, and we, we spoke to a few, have um, some of them have gotten involved in activism. They've gone to vigils. They've become part of the community of, of survivors. They've lived their whole life uh, with mass shootings in the news very frequently. Um, if you just think about the years after 2012, uh, Orlando, Sutherland Springs, Parkland, Las Vegas, this year, Uvalde, uh, Colorado Springs, Buffalo, so, so many, so many more. You know, I grew up in the 90s. I, I remember Columbine, but for me, this was not a fact of life. And I think for Gen Z, that's a very different story. I, I, think, I think it's the same reason you saw so many survivors get involved and become very vocal after uh, Parkland. Uh, Gen Z considers gun violence a major issue that can affect their lives very directly, and they're more vocal about it. Well, here's Maggie Labanca. She lost one of her best friends in the shooting in December 2012. Now a teenager, she's recently been advocating for tougher laws to curb gun violence. Whenever it's needed, wherever it's needed, until people start to feel safe again. I mean, like I said, I don't want to do this. I just want to go to school and I'd like to be here with my friend, but he's not here anymore and 25 other people aren't here anymore and thousands of people aren't here anymore and there needs to be change. We need to do something. So if that requires me to keep working, then I'll keep doing that whatever way I have to. Now, Maggie was in the third grade at Sandy Hook Elementary School a decade ago. How have she and other survivors turned to activism decade, a decade later? So um, yeah, Maggie's story is, is really, um, really compelling. I mean, she got involved in the youth chapter of a group called the Newtown Action Alliance. It's one of a few organizations uh, that uh, came about after December 14th. Um, and Maggie, we also spoke with Camille Paradis, who was also involved, and Natalie Barden, uh, who was also involved. Natalie, um, Natalie's brother, Daniel, uh, was Maggie's friend uh, whom she lost. And they had um, that shared connection. Um, Daniel's father, Mark Barden, is, is also the co-founder of, of Sandy Hook Promise. And this is a group you, you, you may have seen their PSAs, which, which won Emmys. But they do work to encourage kids and educators to, to know the signs of potential violence like isolation and, and bullying. And um, Maggie and Camille and, and Natalie and so many others are, you know, are really a, a local um, – a local profile of a of a larger national movement, and their perspective, I think, is is re- their their story. You know, is mm-hmm. is really important to follow. So we we follow that in the in the podcast as well. What does activism look like in the community of Newtown more broadly? Um, you know, I think uh, there are a lot of there are a, a lot of ways in which people find. A cause, find something to to move them to action, and and I mentioned Sandy Hook Promise, Newtown Action Alliance. There are so many others. I I would really like to, I would really like to spend as much time as I could just naming all of them. So many important groups, um, but it can take a lot of different forms. You know, um, we're going to speak with uh, with uh, Jenny Hubbard in a little bit, who started an animal sanctuary. Um, 
uh, uh, another mother whom I profiled, uh, Francine Wheeler, uh, wrote in, and, and made a, a puppet show. Um, so these things aren't activism, but they're they're ways of finding a purpose, something to to keep you to keep you going and give you hope, and and in in some cases, uh, you know, to to help you look at the future. What did you learn about grief and grieving when when something like this happens and there's this hyper laser focus on a single community that's trying to grieve, trying to grapple with what's happened, and it turns into this national collective exercise of grieving, but the grief is also very personal? How have you seen people in Newtown grapple with that that tension hmm. yeah you know i um i mentioned this in the podcast and there's a question that reporters ask a lot when they come to newtown um and that question is so how are you doing and as i say in the podcast i, I try not to ask that question too much i can't say i've never asked it but i try not to ask that question because it's the question's too easy and the answer is too difficult you know everyone is different not everyone wants to think in terms of healing for some people, some people will say healing is all we have. We have to heal. So as much as we can tell those variety of stories, I think we can begin to come to the truth. You know, Newtown as a community is, is a really it, – it's a town that doesn't want to be defined by one day. You know, it's a town that w- has a lot of interesting stories, a, a lot of – uh, a lot of facets to it, and uh, you know, I, I spoke in the in in one episode with a young couple who recently moved to Newtown, and they told me a story about going to a restaurant where their meal was covered by another family as kind of a, a pay it forward thing. Um, and they said they're just amazed at the kindness of this community, and they're they're so happy they moved here. But to get back to you know what you said about about grief, um, there's an episode called "How the Light Gets In," and that's a that's a line from a, a Leonard Cohen song. There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. And that line is used by a local pastor, a man named uh, Matt Krebin, to describe how you know, even when you've been cracked, you've been injured, you can, you can still shine your light. And in that same episode, he's, he knows his quotes very well. And in that same episode, he mentioned another quote from the writer Anne Lamott, who I am also um, a huge fan of. And uh, she said, and I'm paraphrasing here a little bit, like, when you break your leg, obviously you can't dance. But when it heals, you can learn to dance again, but you dance with a limp. And that's, that's not to say that everyone comes through in the same way or at the same time. And that description might not work for everyone. But I think for a lot of people I, I spoke with, that was their story, dancing with a limp. Well, in your podcast, you speak to Jenny Hubbard. Jenny's daughter, Catherine, was killed in Sandy Hook 10 years ago. Everything I had believed in or hoped for was shaken up. In a, in a matter of a morning on December 14th. And when you're left with nothing, you have the choice of getting real or curling up in a ball. Um, and, you know, I, I think because of my son, I couldn't curl up into a ball. Jenny joins the conversation next. I'm Jen White. This is 1A from WAMU and NPR. Let's return to our conversation remembering Sandy Hook. One week from today will mark a decade since the tragedy took the lives of 20 children and six educators. One of those young victims was six-year-old Catherine Violet Hubbard. Her older brother, Freddie, survived that day. 
Here's their mom, Jenny, talking about the day Freddie returned to school a month later. And so the night before, the normal routine for me was to put the kids' lunchboxes out and get set up for the next day. And it's amazing because when you do something in the dark, <laughs> it doesn't seem so bad. But the next morning, the light was coming into the, into the kitchen and, and the reality that there was only one lunchbox there hit hard. Um, and I knew, I knew that I needed to pack this lunchbox. Um, so Freddie was up getting ready for school and I was packing the lunchbox. And, you know, with each step in making that, filling up that lunchbox, it was horrible. It was this awful realization that I had made this commitment. I now have to live my life and I don't know how I was going to do it. And it all came down to this little tiny note that I put in the lunchbox. And it was, I think, a reminder for Freddie and a reminder for me that, you know, we are loved in the midst of all of it. I think God uses that which he knows we can do. And as difficult as it was, or as easy as it would have been to say, you know what? Nope, we're not going to school today. I can't pack this lunchbox. I did it. And I was able to send him on his way. And he could open up that lunchbox at school and realize that it was okay to live life. That's from the podcast, Still Newtown. It was released this week. And let's hear from Jenny Hubbard. She's the mother you heard from in that clip. Jenny, thanks for joining us. Of course. Thanks for having me. So you started the Catherine Violet Hubbard Animal Sanctuary in Newtown, Connecticut, in honor of your daughter. And the story of how you raised this money initially, I just, <laughs> I was listening and walking my dogs, and it and it stopped me in my tracks. Will you share that story with us? Absolutely. So when when you write, when, when Catherine died, we were given this, it, it sounds horrible, but a kit, um, gratefully, a, a kit that navigated through um, her funeral and, and how you just close um, that, that period. And there was a template for her obituary, and um, it was a, in lieu of flowers, fill in the blank. And in that blank, I filled in the animal center of Newtown, Catherine was passionate about animals. She loved them. And one of her outings was always going to the animal control center. Um, She would return the the bottles that we had recycling, and she would spend that money on milk bones so that she could go into the animal control center. So it seemed apropos that in honoring her life in lieu of flowers, let's buy some milk bones. And... um, the typographical error of, of omitting the word control set into motion the beautiful sanctuary that we have now. Um, the animal center of Newtown actually existed. It was uh, four women. They uh, rescued cats and dogs. They came over to the house in January. They introduced themselves, and they said they had received an ex- a, a significant amount of money. It was about $130,000 that, um, in memory of Catherine and uh, their first question was, "What do you want to do with with this with, with this money?" And Catherine was the animal girl, and so um, we volleyed back and forth. And and they, I, I finally said, "You know, w- what would you like?" Because these were Catherine's kindred spirits, and they described a place of sanctuary where children would see their own innate beauty in the eyes of the animals that they encountered. And in that moment, I saw Catherine, and and the sanctuary was born. In the podcast, you talk about something Catherine would say to 
mm-hmm. say, a butterfly <laughs> that was resting mm-hmm. on her hand before she let it go back and into the wild. Will you share that with us? Of course. We had a rule in our house that um, if you had a friend for the day, if you collected an animal um, or a creature in, in the backyard, which I think a lot of kids do, um, it, the rule in our house was you had to release it at the end of the day. Partly because I, I kind of would, I kind of think with Catherine's love of animals, we would have uh, very quickly assembled some sort of Noah's Ark in our house. <laughs> and so um, Catherine had this gentle way of releasing them at, at the end of the day. She'd crouch over them and she'd send them off with, with this tiny whisper. And one day I asked her, well, what are you saying? And um, her request of them was simple. Please tell your friends that I'm kind. She had this belief if they went back to their people um, and let them know that Catherine Violet Hubbard was a kind and gentle soul, that they would all come back to her um, in droves. And so it's that it's that premise, it's that whisper of, of tell all your friends that I'm kind, that we built the sanctuary. What is creating and leading the animal sanctuary meant for how you're processing your grief? Yeah, I think as, as as any parent hopes that their child becomes a productive member of the community that they serve, that they follow their heart, and that they are able to to make a remarkable impact on this world. And so, while Catherine is no longer gracing the earth, her spirit and her and her love is making a remarkable impact. We're we're creating a place where humans and animals. Um, all creatures know that that they're safe and that people are kind. I want to mention another family you profiled, Davis. Um, seven-year-old Daniel Barden also died at Sandy Hook Elementary School, and his father, Mark, described the morning of December 14th. He was up earlier than, than ever, and we were watching the sunrise with the Christmas tree lights and reflecting in the window, and he said, you know, look at how beautiful that is, Dad. And, and I went to get the camera, and I remember thinking, wow, it's really cool this seven-year-old kid is noticing those things and stopping everything to, to appreciate the colors of the sunrise with the reflection of the Christmas tree lights in the window. I just thought it's pretty remarkable. And that's from the podcast, Still Newtown, out this week from WSHU. Mark and his daughter, Natalie, say Daniel loved to sing and play music. Like probably four or five, was he? Yeah, he was really little. Yeah. I remember he like learned it in kindergarten or something or preschool. Yeah, he did. He learned it in school and he came up and, and he and he just decided on his own to do that and he was nervous. Yeah, he his little hands holding the microphone. Like And then I remember didn't he run into your arms afterwards? Yeah. You were you held him oh yeah. Davis, what did the Bardens tell you about how music has been both a source of pain and healing for them? So um, Mark has been a a professional musician uh, for decades. Um, And uh, his, his, you know, you heard Daniel singing there. Uh, His daughter Natalie also sings. And uh, as, as Mark got more involved in his work with Sandy Hook Promise, as we mentioned earlier, which is, you know, an organization that's, uh, 
focused on the idea of knowing uh, the warning signs of, of gun violence. Um, at the same time, um, and I should mention that Mark is is one of is not the only um, the only uh, person and only family member involved in that that uh, organization as well. And they're Newtown based too. Um, he his daughter Natalie started to get a little bit more into um, into singing. And the name of the episode is To Be Humble, To Be Kind. And that's a line from a uh, Tim McGraw song. I've got to be honest. I'm, I, haven't, <laughs> I hadn't heard much Tim McGraw. Um, and, but I, I heard them sing that song. And uh, it was, it, it's a really beautiful moment of, of hearing a father and a daughter um, come together musically. You know, um, I think for anybody who loves, uh, who loves music, you, you can see how music and family can be so closely related, right? And... Uh, you know, Natalie said that she's a country person and Mark, he's a little bit more of a classic rock and blues guy. Um, but uh, there, I, I, I loved the way that they found uh, music as a, as a, as a way to, to bond and to come closer. Jenny, part of what you share in the podcast is your relationship with faith mm-hmm. after this tragedy. What has that journey been like? It, it, after losing Catherine, I, the only way I can describe it is it's like a snow globe. So like you 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 shake it up. When Catherine died, it got sh- it got shaken up, and my entire belief system um, sort of settled in a in a new way when those flakes fall to the bottom of the snow globe. And um, my faith journey has been a realization that my faith before Catherine died was completely upside down and and misguided. Um, since Catherine died, uh, my faith journey has been in understanding that we come to a place of peace when we're truly authentic with ourselves and real with our fe- feelings and um, transparent with, with the people that we surround ourselves with. A true vulnerability um, has grown my faith uh, and made me realize that it's where I found my footing after Catherine died. Jenny, you talked about your personal faith journey. How have Newtown's faith communities supported you in the past decade? I think the faith community has been a place where um, I've been able to just settle in. Um, shortly after after Catherine died, I um, moved churches, believe it or not. Um, church was the place that, that I could sit and cry, uh, and losing Catherine in such a public uh, manner, it became hard to just go and um, cry and cry in church. It was like I had eyes on me, and and um, when I moved churches, I found a place that I found a community that that came around me and allowed me to be a a, a mother who was grieving her baby girl. Mm. I asked Davis earlier about the challenges of the individual process of grief mm. when a tragedy like this occurs and, and it feels like there's this collective desire to grieve. How, how have you managed that? The, the, the piece of advice that was given to me um, shortly after uh, Catherine's death was no one in your house is going to grieve the same. In fact, no one is ever going to grieve the way that you're going to grieve because no one will ever have the relationship um, that you're grieving. So as, as, a, as a mother to Catherine, 
um, that was unique. And um, I think in that in that advice was the dropping of expectations um, and, and a refocusing on standing beside the people that were also grieving, but allowing them to grieve in, in the manner that that they needed to. All expectations um, were gone, and, and the, it was the same truth for um, for my son. I, I I don't know what it's like to lose a sister. Um, so I think that I think that as I as I look at the communities, and I think that as we look at uh, collectively look at communities that grieve, um, I think that w- we need to come along the individuals. Um, and understand that by being supportive and encouraging the individual griever, we as a community, a, a collective community of, of grievers, um, somehow grow uh, from that process and, and face forward, um, embracing a future that I, I can assure anybody that is always good. Well, in the last decade, I'm curious to hear, Davis, what role Newtown has played in supporting communities that have been sites of mass shootings. Yeah, you know, it's, um, you, a, a community experiences something like this, and it sort of becomes, you know, like I said before, people don't want to be defined by one day, but it becomes something that if you're not from Newtown, there's an association, right? And I I would guess, as a more local reporter, I don't know the experiences of, of other communities as closely, uh, but I would I would suspect that this is not something that's unique. Um, earlier this year at a, a rally um, uh, shortly after the Uvalde, um, uh, the, the shooting at Robb Elementary, uh, Newtown signed um, uh, the Newtown Action Alliance, actually, um, anti-gun violence advocacy group, uh, signed a banner uh, to send there. And, and I remember seeing it and I remember thinking back to walking through the halls of Newtown's Municipal Center in about December, um, late December, early January of 2012, and, um, or January 2013, and seeing a banner from Columbine. And, uh, you know, I used the term earlier, and I think it's a term worth remembering, a community of survivors. Um, and uh, people become part of this community every day, not just through things like, you know, what happened at Sandy Hook or Robb Elementary or Marjorie uh, Stoneman Douglas, uh, but um, in in incidents every day that that don't draw um, that don't necessarily draw big headlines. Jenny, what advice would you give to members of the media? I think the best advice I can give is just to be sensitive to to the fact that these are families that are that are in shock. Um, and in, in that in this traumatic moment that their sharing of their stories is, is a sacred sharing um, and to hold that in a, in a way that is gentle and, and kind, it's not just a story, it's a life. That's Jenny Hubbard. She's president of the Catherine Violet Hubbard Animal Sanctuary in Newtown, Connecticut. She created that sanctuary in honor of her daughter. We got this tweet from Kristen who says, listening to Catherine's mother speak of the beauty that was her daughter is bringing me to tears. Jenny, thank you so much for sharing with us today. We appreciate you. Thank you. Well, before we go, Davis, I want to circle back to a word we've heard several times today, and that's resilience. 
What does resilience look like for Newtown? Because I think when, when we hear that word, we, also, we always think of someone sort of just toughing something out. But is it more complex than that? It's, it's really complex. And you're right that that's, the, that's a word that comes back again and again. Um, it, it doesn't tell every story. It's, and it's, I don't think it's as simple as toughing something out, but it's, it's holding together and continuing to grow and, and continuing to stay uh, strong and stay true to who you are. Um, you know, in, we all face things in our lives that we're going to have to be resilient about in one way or another. And I think the lesson here is as complicated as this story is, we keep living, we keep going, we keep growing, and we hold together. That's Davis Donovan. He's a reporter at WSHU and host of the podcast, Still Newtown. Davis, thank you so much. A quick note, I'm heading out on vacation for a bit. We have a great lineup of guest hosts to take you through the next couple of weeks, including NPR's Sarah McCammon and David Gura and PBS NewsHour's Amna Navaz. Today's producer was Avery J.C. Kleinman. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. Take good care of yourselves, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.